Welcome to this week's episode of Daily Horror Habit, the podcast for horror obsessives. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you horror movie reviews and discussions every Friday for your twisted pleasure. And as always, be warned, these reviews and discussions may include spoilers. For the month of April, I'm covering horror sequels that don't get enough love in an effort to dispel the false notion that all horror sequels are just more of the same. And I'm starting horror sequel month off with a look at Don Taylor's 1978 Damien Omen 2. This sequel to Richard Donner's 1976 horror classic The Omen picks up seven years after the untimely death of Damien's parents, and he's since been adopted by his aunt and uncle, who have enrolled him in military school. But as is a trend with Damien, a slew of bodies follow in his demonic wake. And joining me this week to chat about this satanic sequel is Michael Vaughn. Michael is a film journalist and author of The Ultimate Guide to Strange Cinema, and he currently hosts a podcast called Return of the Living Geeks on YouTube. In addition, his other bylines include Films in Review, Fangoria, and AMC's The Bite. So without further ado, Michael, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate you taking the time to chat about a film that I hadn't seen before. And if anything, I think it's a perfect jumping off point to uh, highlight horror sequels that maybe don't get the love that they truly deserve. But before we get into uh, Damien Omen 2, I thought uh, I would ask, you know, generally when I have first time guests on... Um, I like to kind of pick their brain about if they remember the first horror movie or moment that left an impression on them for uh, for better or worse. Uh, yeah. So um, I think the first um, probably horror movie was Child's Play, the original. Mm-hmm. My sister and I, uh, we we snuck. I forget how we like snuck that VHS in because um, we were way too young. I was maybe <laughs> like six or seven um like scared the hell out of me but i also was kind of like a diehard horror fan after that and um the other film that actually made a a pretty big impact on me was the original um little shop of horrors like not the um musical remake but the like the og one Mm -hmm. um and that had a big impact on me and um it was kind of cool because like full circle i got to meet roger corbin so that was very cool amazing that's awesome i think that Everybody on some level has uh, an experience with Child's Play, right? I mean, I didn't see that movie until I was older, but I remember like wandering down the aisles of Suncoast Video and seeing the cover for that and the cover of that movie scaring the hell out of me at a very young age to the point where I was like, yeah, I guess I got to I got to find out what that is eventually. But that was definitely one that uh, everybody that I talked to about horror seems to have somewhat of a uh, traumatic relationship with that movie. Yeah. I'm trying to, I'm trying to even remember, I should talk to my sister cause um, she might maybe uh, recall better, but I'm trying to think if like, like somebody had the VHS and we like watched it when our parents weren't home um, at this point, like my mom and dad were like trying to keep me away from horror movies, but at a certain point they just sort of gave up. <laughs> so um but yeah, so I guess like I, I would definitely say that was like a good starter. And it's kind of interesting because I feel like um like killer dollar or kind of killer small things is kind of interesting as a starter horror for like younger people. I don't know if there's like a correlation between that, but it's almost like I know I've talked to a lot of people that like you know, a child's play was their first horror movie or like critters or some like small sort of creature kind of thing. Um, I feel like it's more terrifying when you're a kid because like they're at your level. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I think also it's, it's kind of like introducing the idea that something that would be precious to you, like a toy or your favorite toy as a child is essentially like betraying that trust, right? The idea that this thing that when you were a kid probably spent a majority of the day with all of a sudden is chasing around with a knife. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, I feel like after that I had it like the Teddy rock spins. Do you remember those? Mm. Um, yeah. I got rid of him with equipment. <laughs> um. <laughs> That's a great uh, example of just like how formative certain movies can be for people and how, you know, regardless of if you've seen other things like it, it kind of instills this, this curiosity, at least in my case, like I would always find myself curious about horror movies. And then that really instilled in me that like, oh, I should seek those out when I can, when I can, you know, squirrel away a copy from a friend or go over to a friend's house and watch something that uh, maybe their parents would let us watch than uh, maybe necessarily my own would. But I think uh, in terms of like today chatting about horror and, you know, sequels and specifically The Omen 2, um, for you, what do you typically look for in a horror sequel? Do you kind of 
look for a horror sequel that maybe is very much tied to like the bigger and better mentality of some horror sequels? Are you looking for a unique spin on the original or the subsequent sequels? So I have to say that like, I love horror sequels that are so like at a left field from the original, like those kind of have a special place for me. Like I'm thinking like the sleepaway camp sequels were like just extreme parallels to like the first film and (laughs) Or like this, like the Slumber Party Massacre sequels, which pretty much resemble nothing of the original. But that's what I kind of love about it. Um, So I kind of like that uh, when, you know, they go to the extreme. But I don't know. I kind of also like, um, I mean, all I ask for a sequel is just don't rehash it. Like, just give me something interesting. Like, give me an interesting spin or like an interesting hook. Um, Like folding this into what we're going to talk about with Omen 2 like, you know, the interesting hook is it's kind of a coming of age movie uh, wrapped up in an Omen sequel. Um, so there there is like that, you know, entry point for me that that I'm like, OK, you know, I'm intrigued now. Um, so, yeah, I mean, just uh, don't bore me. But that's just kind of anything for like any movie, like just be interesting, uh, even if you're bad, just like, you know, be spectacularly bad then <laughs> be bad in your own unique way. But no, I'm right there with you, like especially when I'm sure you can relate to this, when you watch such a wide volume of whether it be horror movies or just movies in general for coverage or, you know, podcast prep or this and that. It's very much the type of thing where I get to the point where I'm like, I just want to see something that I either haven't seen before or I want to see something that's memorable, whether it be memorable for, you know, being either a really creative standout or, you know, being memorably bad uh, going all for it. But I think that that's the element of horror sequels that I really, really like is that certain franchises will, you know, they'll throw out those premises that are like out of left field that build upon the original. And for me, even if they don't necessarily surpass the original I'm still appreciative of the fact that they went out there and did something that was different. It doesn't just feel, and you know, there are examples of sequels that are sort of just bigger and better that feel like there's more, you know, budget, there's better production behind it. And it essentially feels like a remake of the original in a way. But I find that when I'm like visiting franchises or series of horror, I'm always looking for something that goes beyond the pale of the original in some way, even if it doesn't land. Um, I think of something like, Friday the 13th, like the new blood, right? Which introduces this kind of like Carrie-esque angle to it and this supernatural battle between uh, the final girl and Jason and whatnot, which not a perfect film, not my favorite film out of that series, but I'm appreciative of the fact that you can get that deep into a series and introduce something completely brand new or introduce new concepts uh, since the original. Yeah, and and um, I would even say like the like the sequel to um, the original Friday the 13th, for example, is, you know, really awesome because we we're introduced to Jason, which um, I'm sure you and a lot of your listeners know, um, you know, Jason wasn't really even planned for part one. Um, right. So they took they took that and they kind of expanded upon it, which I think is interesting. And, and what I think a good sequel should do is you know, not retread the first film, but just, you know, kind of add to it. And like, like I, I have to say, I think one of the perfect horror sequels is Hellbound, Hellraiser 2. Mm. Um, because it is amazing. It has, I mean, it's a, it's a new director, but it feels so much in line, like tone and production values. But you know, it gives you bigger and better, but it also doesn't feel like it betrays uh, what was so kind of special about the first film. And then it also expands on the mythology. So it's doing a lot of work, but, um, you know, it feels very effortless. Um, yeah, it feels like a natural continuation, even if it deviates in a different, you know, whether it's expanding the lore or kind of leading the narrative in a different avenue or giving other characters focus. I mean, those are, again, like I'm always in favor of a sequel doing something new. And even if it doesn't resemble the original, but there's still some of that connective tissue, right? There's just a little bit of it. Um, One like Silent Deadly Night is a series that, you know, I haven't seen all of them, but from jumping it from watching the original and then randomly coming across, I think it was number five, which is like the toy maker. 
a, a film that has nothing to do with the original yet it still feels like it fits within that universe that kind of like weird who done it and turns that uh, original concept on its head in a pretty creative uh, creatively damning way but in terms of like the omen series this was one for me that I had seen the remake and which I think was in like 2006 maybe and then I'd never seen the original series and in getting to watch the original and then omen 2 for our chat today I'm curious for you because um, you had tweeted actually that you're more in favor or you almost like the second one more than the original and I'm just curious what about the sequel stands out from the original for you yeah. Uh, so I want to clarify by saying, like, I, I think that the original Omen, like Richard mm-hmm. Donner's Omen, is technically well better made. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's extremely well directed, well acted. But I will say that the sequel, um, again, it has that really interesting hook of like, you know, uh, take a coming of age movie and then your protagonist who's coming of, of age just happens to be the Antichrist. and what would that be like um but and then also like put in like oscar winners lee grant oscar winning actor william halden um amazing legends like uh sydney um or sorry sylvia sydney um you know it, it has such an amazing cast um you know it has the dp who shot jaws um so i mean i i feel like this movie's such is very beautifully shot but anyways yeah it, it's um i don't know I, I was trying to really really think about like what makes this more accessible to me and i think that it's just it knows what it is um like it tries to be outrageous but then it's also incredibly earnest like mm. it is is trying to be this the, the same kind of caliber as the original the omen and I think what's interesting is I think a lot of people kind of forget that the Omen, the original Omen was such a huge hit. I mean, it made a lot of money. And, you know, that's why you kind of see um, actors of like William Holden's pedigree wanting to now be in a quote unquote, you know, cheesy horror movie sequel. Um, but but nobody ever plays it like that, which, which I love. Um, everyone is doing it like, they're you know in hamlet or something um so yeah i love the earnestness about it i love that kind of angle of like a coming of age story but it's like the son of the devil um i like i said the casting is amazing oh one thing that's kind of cool um this movie has a really interesting connection to billy wilder and um Don Taylor was an actor in um, he's a director, obviously he was a director, but he actually has like over 50 film credits. And one of them was Stalock 17, which is such a criminally underrated Billy Wilder movie, which also stars William Holden. Um, so that's kind of cool. Yeah. A little interesting trivia. Um, so yeah. Um, I think the, the, the kid that plays Damien, um, Jonathan Scott Taylor is amazing. I think that that's a perfect casting. It's kind of a shame that he never really did much after this. Um, you know, Lance Hendrickson is always great. Um, I actually got to meet him at a convention. He was in, insanely nice. Um, Very cool. Yeah. So, um, it, yeah, it, it's pretty awesome. Now, I will say that... Um, there is definitely elements that I think kind of hold this movie down. Like I think the pacing is really kind of wonky at times. Um, I don't know if you want to jump into the the cons yet, but um, you know, I, 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 I always think that like the, the crop subplot is really kind of uninteresting. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I just want more of the like coming of age story, but it's the damn Antichrist. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I guess before I delve into the cons, which I totally agree with, um, with what you had said, um, I love the angle of this movie in being that coming of age story and focusing more on Damien's upbringing and whatnot and how he is really coming into his powers and his knowledge of like who he is and that whole thing. And that would be an element that I wanted more of. And every time the movie cuts away from that, I was like, wait, but this is the more interesting element to your film. And and at the same time, it feels like that 
natural connective tissue to the original, right? Because again, I had never watched the original trilogy, but then getting to see each of the entries in that series be basically an evolution of his childhood or different stages of his childhood and growing up and whatnot is a concept that I love and that connects each of the three original films. And yeah, Jonathan Scott Taylor, I think, does a terrific job at playing that middle ground of being like sort of this confused, scared kid, but then at the same time that sinisterness comes out pretty, I would say it's paced really, really well throughout the film in terms of that, that it comes off as being more genuine. And I think to your point about how almost every main character role in this movie being cast so well is that this movie doesn't carry a lot of the qualities that I think people stigmatize horror sequels with a lot of the time where they'll say, oh, it's just this or that. Like people are just trying to cash in on the success of the original. They're just doing the same thing. So sometimes I think that that comes through when you have a group of people that are in a film like this and maybe they're treating it as if it is this very sort of like afterthought thing. Sometimes that comes through in certain people's performances where it's almost like, well, do the people involved in this respect the subject matter to the degree we're going to get a compelling performance? And with this film, I was really surprised to find that everybody treats the material, like you had said, like as if it's Hamlet or something in that they deliver their lines like they are clearly giving them, you know, lots of thought. They're giving them their all. And it comes out in the ways in which the relationships are portrayed in this in a way that feels like a very natural progression from the original film. And, you know, it does introduce sort of a messy plot line that goes in directions and gives a little more emphasis on the lesser interesting parts of sort of the attempts at expanding the Omens uh, universe or story, as it were. But I think overall, this movie carries it like it almost is the original in a way that I find, you know, it, I don't think it surpasses the original, but it carries it in a way that it definitely stands above a lot of other horror sequels, I think, in, from this era specifically, too. Uh, like you had said, a lot of people at that time were probably like, well, yeah, that was popular, so they're just going to cash in on it. But overall, though, it, the entire production carries it as if this is the Omen 1.5 instead of just being like any kind of generic sequel. Yeah, I mean, again, it's for the most part really well written. Um, Stanley Mann wrote, wrote the screenplay, and he had has has had a really interesting career. He's written the original um, Conan the Destroyer, Firestarter, um, The Collector, the 1965 film. Um, yeah, it, it's it's you know it, it definitely flows really nicely. Like if you watch this back, to, did you watch this back to back? By the way. I watched back to back days. Okay. First so yeah. So even that, like, I'm sure, you know, it probably kind of was pretty seamless. I mean, obviously you have like different directors, different DPs and stuff, but I feel like it's really interesting because I did um, do a nice double feature um, the other day just to refresh myself. And, you know, um, whoever um, like, like the creative team behind Omen 2 actually, I feel like did a good job of trying to, you know, match that kind of tone visually. Um, you know, there's, a, you know, that kind of like melancholy that runs through the first film that I feel like kind of also um, hits here. Although I think, you know, you definitely get a little bit more um, bombastic with the sequel, which is fine. Like stuff's a little more outrageous, which I, I love. Um, like the death scenes are are pretty good. Um, I, I mean, you know, for like like, yeah, it just kind of gives me everything I want. It's a great cast. It's incredibly well shot. And again, it's like like we were saying, like they treat this with respect, and you can you can tell that. Yeah, I think for me, what made it so seamless going from you know the original to the sequel was first and foremost was Jerry Goldsmith's score, right? I mean, he did the score for the first three films and just getting something that feels from, you know, sometimes when I go and watch a sequel or something, you notice that, okay, either the composer's not returning or the music is so drastically, in, like, um, maybe not detrimental to the experience, but it's not of the same caliber or quality of the original that it's noticeable, that it's almost feels like an afterthought. And here, that is a big role, I think, in being that connective tissue is just the his ability to have a score that ha carries that very ominous tone and weight to it. But 
expands upon it a little bit, right? I think that one thing I was reading about was that there's almost an more of an emphasis on like chanting or cultist kind of like murmurings or prayers that play in the background of some of the score for the sequel. And that I think does a great job of feeling somewhat familiar, but feels unexpected in the way that I was unprepared for. And just like the direction that this narrative takes and in introducing the angle of like, oh, there are these Satanists embedded within society that know about Damien and they're like right there for his formative years to try to help uh, push him in the right direction of, you know, the full return of the Antichrist and things like that. And just having that brief realization from the soundtrack early on in the film and then having that carry throughout the whole film and seeing where the different, you know, plot avenues go and whatnot, it made for something that felt welcoming and familiar, but also unexpected in a way that I really appreciated. And it kind of added another level of depth, I think, to the overall production of this film in a way that, you know, is definitely a standout, I think, for a horror sequel from, especially again, coming back to like this era that it doesn't just feel like it is another page from a different book or something like that. It feels like they're making choice decisions to hone the sort of stylistic elements of the original in a way that might not always succeed, but I think that it does a good enough job at least of establishing that omen feel and universe in a really convincing way. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, it's um, really impressive how they were able to just um, make it feel so much at home with the the first film. Um, Again, you know, it does have some wonky elements that I think is what makes the first one kind of better in a way because, you know, it's so um, lean and efficient, whereas like the Omen 2 is entertaining but it's not as um like it feels like it is working a little bit too hard on some of the um plot lines like you know uh like some of it again feels sort of overwritten when i think that you know you don't really need a lot of that um like again i i get what they're going for with like the whole like crop thing like but it just again, it never really goes anywhere that I feel is like meaningful. Um, and again, it always just kind of sidelines the really interesting bits of the film, um, which is like Damien at the Academy. Um, that was the element that I was most surprised by um, in terms of like deviating the focus from Damien. And I don't know, the focus at times feels really erratic to me. And it's for this various plot points that uh, we've kind of mentioned briefly. But yeah, it feels like they are trying to do so much at once that it definitely gets a little lost in the weeds and convoluted in a way that doesn't necessarily need to be. Um, whether it be, you know, the emphasis, the focus shifting from Damien and his cousin at the military school to then the crops and overseas and this sort of like satan- satanic uh, corporate espionage and whatnot that's going on. Um, I like the idea of them trying to flesh out the Omen universe and, you know, pull the scope back a little bit in terms of like f- where it's heading with that third film. But at the same time, like it becomes less personable and the focus leaving Damien I found was shocking because that is the most interesting aspect I think and I wanted to spend more time in that sort of formative years and him really getting like not just one or two examples of him sort of fully realizing his powers and how he can use them but we do get a couple of good uh, solid scenes like where he's schooling the history teacher on you know the history of all the world and whatnot which is a fantastic scene and I think also it it adds a layer of balance to the movie where you know we're going to get into a lots of the uh, outrageous kills and whatnot and how I found that they really amped up from the original, but it was nice to get a scene that shows his powers in a capacity that is not somebody getting decapitated or cut in half uh, once in a while. You know, as much as I enjoy those scenes, I liked that there was a level of restraint there that can show him as being menacing and being this force to be reckoned with without him just, you know, ultimately uh, bringing about somebody's death. I thought that I could have used a few more interesting, creatively restrained scenes such as that. Yeah. And, um, you know, I mean, again, to the point of the, the whole like, um, you know, crop 
type thing. I'm, I'm, I mean, I wouldn't mind that so much if like there was like a really good payoff with that. Mm. It just feels like it's weird because it feels like it's setting something up that is never really paid off. Um, Like I, I, in theory, I, I get what they're doing. They're, they're like setting up like how, they're paving the way for his his power and control. Um, like I totally get that, but um, you, you know, you need to if you're gonna set up something that is as taking up a lot of the plot, you really need something good to sort of like be the payoff to that. Um, so yeah, um, I definitely agree with you. I mean, I kind of like that's such a great point. Like, I really wish there was. Um, some more deeply personal moments with Damien. Um, you know, there's a really great scene between him and Mark, um, like right before Mark gets killed, that I think is like such a really interesting um, like set piece. Um, and yeah, I, I love it. I, I kind of like how, so, I mean, if for anybody that hasn't seen the movie, it's, you know, Damien is confronting his, um, I guess, cousin, uh, mm-hmm. Mark. And um, he wants, you know, Damien wants um, Mark to join him. But like, he's like, no, um, you know, no dice. And like, he ends up have, like killing him. And it's like, it's, it's, you can tell it's heartbreaking for him. Um, like, I don't know if their relationship is so well established that that, has the emotional weight it wanted but it's such a great almost operatic scene that you wouldn't really expect for like the omen sequel yeah absolutely and i think that that scene and the attention that it gets and it's able to carry that emotional weight i think because it isn't one of those more uh outrageous kind of like far out there kill scenes that we get throughout the film right a lot of the most brutal deaths in this movie are deaths of characters that he has no relationship with outside of, you know, them having some sort of threat behind their actions or what he perceives as being a threat, whether it be, you know, something dealing specifically with him, like his true identity being revealed or something of that nature. But in this scene where it's his cousin who I think you're definitely right. They only have one or two moments where you get the sense that like they are really best friends. I wish we'd had a little bit more with those two uh, as well. But like his death doesn't ha- is not super over the top. It I mean I assume that it's supposed to be something like he causes a like an aneurysm or something in him that kills him. But the fact that it's not some elaborate death scene really does sort of capture the significance of it in a way that makes it a standout, right? Because like we've said, so many of the kills in this are elaborate, they're over the top, and most of the characters that that uh, is happening to are characters that he doesn't either care about or has no personal relationship with. It's just that they are a threat, and so the threat is treated as such, whereas his uh, interaction with Mark is very much his most personable kill. And so to have that scene be really reliant just on the performance and not be distracted by, again, this elaborate set piece or kills and or uh, practical effects and kills and things like that, um, I think just furthermore places an importance on it and how that really is the turning point for Damien in that point in the film um, in a way that made it a standout. And I, I just wish that we had gotten more scenes just of those two talking and getting more of a sense of them. But I guess that comes back to really the idea that this narrative is so over the place that it really does sort of pivot from the more interesting aspect that's introduced. But I still think it's significant that we have a more personable coming of age tale, but I just wish we'd spent maybe a little more time with it. Yeah, that's exactly like it's a little bit overstuffed in places it doesn't need and then kind of understuffed with things, you know, it definitely could use. Um, But I also kind of think that um, the, um, the scene with like Lee Grant at the end when um, cause I don't know why I feel like the first time I saw that, that like genuinely shocked me because I didn't think that he was going to like literally incinerate her. Um, and I mean, you know, yeah, uh, again, like hindsight, um, obviously that's, you know, seems pretty fitting, but like, yeah, I mean, again, it's like these, um, you know, it, it's when he kills people that 
are the closest to him that I think has the most impactful kind of weight to them. Yeah. And, you know, the element of this sequel that I was very surprised by was that this movie really does carry it almost like Final Destination in a way, right? Because in the original film for, a, for I think, most of the kills, like Damien or someone else has a physical hand in somebody getting killed or getting injured, right? Where Damien's riding the tricycle or his nanny starts trying to kill his father first. But in this sequel, it's very much like the Raven is used as like Damien's shepherd or servant kind of to enact that and really stages a majority of the deaths and kills as being just these natural accidents, right? I mean, at the very beginning, you have the two characters and his name escapes me now, but the uh, character from the original film that told Damien's father. Yeah, exactly. um, Who supplied Damien's father with not only the knowledge, but the knives with which to kill him. Like that was a great reintroduction to his character and, you know, connecting to the original one, but then immediately killing him off in a cave-in, right? He's trying to furthermore warn people and get this new cycle of, you know, warning them about the Antichrist and whatnot. And then having this elaborate set piece where he's in the caverns and then not only do they get blocked off from leaving, but then they get buried alive, basically, which is like adding insult to injury, right? Um, which I really, really liked because, again, when they're approaching, especially like I find in a lot of religious horror movies, there's a tendency to have every single kill be super over the top in a way that you can't explain how something's happened or it's so fantastical that how do people still like debate whether or not there's like a supernatural enemy here. But for a majority of this film, so many of the deaths are staged as being accidents, right? Whether it be the cave-in, the aunt who's very, uh, who's believes that Damien is the antichrist and she like sees through his ruse basically. Um, she has a heart attack, which obviously Damien had a hand in. Um, but then also like he sends the Raven after the journalist that is uncovering the truth about him and then has the Raven peck her eyes out. And then basically they recreate, uh, or they have that moment that's similar to like Gage and Pet Cemetery getting hit by the 18 wheeler. But all of these are staged like accidents in a way that I thought that it was an interesting use of changing things from just like having Damien front and center of every scene or having it be so obvious that he was involved. And I kind of, I liked that conspiracy angle to it a little bit where people are trying to decide, well, were these accidents? Did he have a hand in it? What's really going on here? Yeah. And I think I do um, really like the one element that, um, you know, they set up at the very beginning, which is like, you know, this priest had a vision of the antichrist and painted it. In, on a like Miro. And I think that that was really cool. I, I think it's such a cool sort of device to, again, tie in the first film and then this film. Um, and again, that's kind of like the, uh, you know, it's interesting because the first film has um, definitely has like a mystery element to it, even though like going in, we know what's going on. Um, but um you know, this one doesn't quite have that sort of mystery element like um, with, I guess, in the first film, there was like the photographs that tipped him off um, of like people that were about to die had like this sh- like streak in the photos and and little like clues or omens, if you will, of um, like what's going on. But like, I love how the wall is like, it, it, it's such a interesting but really efficient way of like getting to like that revelation moment um like you know writing this you have to kind of figure out like what is the turning point that like this sane person is going to be like yeah this this kid is the antichrist um so again it, it it serves twofold of like again really finding an interesting way of sort of like tying in the mythos but also like giving a shorthand to um, like, here's concrete proof. Um, so I think that that's a really smart sort of um, storytelling device to, to, you know, get that done pretty uh, efficiently. Which, uh, which of these kills for the sequel was the most that stood out to you or had the most, you know, technical proficiency that saw a leap in, 
either the production from the original one or just a kill in general, you know, whether it be creativity or just the uh, scope of the kill set piece really stood out to you? Uh, I really like when the doctor is bisected. Um, I think that's pretty awesome. Like, like I like how they're like, okay, we're going to take the decapitation scene from the first film, but we're going to like up the ante. Um, <laughs> like, I think it's really well done. I think it's maybe the, one of the more graphics uh, kills in the movie also. Um, I mean, because it's interesting rewatching this, like I remembered it being a little bit more, more gory, but I think like the bisection is arguably like the, the goriest it goes. Um, and, and it's really a uh, well done. It's well paced. Um, it ha- it's like a really nice shocking set piece because it's interesting i was thinking about like when i was taking notes for this i was like all right you know the the original omen has so many great set pieces that like stand out you know like the nanny killing herself or um the you know dogs attacking or um you know oh i can't think of like the the sp- the church graveyard or the churchyard where the guy gets skewered by the spike. Um, yeah, or like again the the pretty infamous decapitation that is beautifully filmed from like a thousand different angles. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's um you know I think it's one of those like this movie I think could have used more really memorable set pieces like that, but mm-hmm. yeah, that is mwah, so good. <laughs> Yeah, I got to say, the kills themselves, I'm appreciative of the fact that it looks like there might have been a little more technical proficiency in in capturing those moments or there might be a little bit more gore in them. They definitely could have used more attention to the set pieces that they unfold in. But I agree with you in terms of like that doctor bisection kill in that, like, I love the fake out of that, right, where the elevator falls. And then you, at least I assumed the first time I saw it that like, oh, yeah, he's just going to like go splat. And then that doesn't kill him. And then you have the cables come down and cut the entire car in half and him like, that's a great payoff on, you know, challenging the audience's expectations because you're right. That feels like sort of a callback a little bit to the decapitation in the original film. And the audience, I feel like is probably almost expecting another decapitation. And so to very actively work on elevating that moment and, you know, not to like say one's better than the other, but like raising the stakes as it were, or building upon the expectation for something of that caliber. I love the idea that kind of as soon as the audience thinks that that kill or, you know, it was going to be a kill and then it doesn't result in him dying and then pulling the rug out from under them and having an even more graphic version of the decapitation scene, I thought was a really great job of, and what I think a lot of sequels should do well, or like what I would like them to do is almost sort of toy with fans of the original of the film that it's coming after in the idea that it's like something's familiar, but you're going to take it another step further. We didn't have to get another just decapitation scene similar to the original one. They director really took it a step further. And I think probably the best way possible for something like that, like familiar, but building upon it in, you know, the goriest means possible. Yeah. And, you know, you have to also like realize um, like, it's not probably shocking today, obviously, because you see gorier stuff on like TV. But like this was 1978. This was like the same year that the original Halloween came out. Um, so like something like this from like a, like a mainstream studio was probably pretty shocking. Um, like to actually see somebody like bisected and their like guts falling out. Um like, I don't think you're expecting that from a movie from a big studio with, like, William Holden and Lee Grant, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> um, yeah, I like it. I mean, I think that, um, you know, that's, like, one of my favorites, but I think, like, runner-up, I do really like um, the scene with um, the reporter. Um, that's um, Elizabeth Shepard, who um, my Vincent Price fans will know was in um, the Tomb of Lygia. Um, I would love to meet her someday. I don't know if she probably doesn't do conventions anymore, but like, yeah, like it's um, that's pretty awesome. Like, I, I like how it's um, I mean, it's just that kind of right amount of like 
um, like cheesy, but like really satisfying. Yeah, I like that kill a lot. Um, you know, the cheesy part is probably when you see the body, the dummy flying when she when she bounces off the 18 wheeler. But I like, again, the layers to that kill in that it's not just her running into traffic, getting hit by it. Right. You, you literally have to watch her get her eyes pecked out and get her, you know, scalp picked at by this raven. And then you get that momentary close up of her eyes that are gone, clearly. And then just taking it one step further, having her get hit by an 18 wheeler, which is, you know, uh, over (laughs) kind of overkill at that point. Right. But I just like the idea that they're layering these things in a way that you can kind of see it coming. But at the same time, it's almost unexpected based on the way that they carry the buildup to that scene. You're like, well, she's already had her eyes picked out and she's getting her scalp ripped apart by this bird. Like what else could happen? And then it's like, well, of course, they're going to throw an 18 wheeler at her now. But I just appreciate the fact that a majority of the kills have some type of surprise component to them. You know, the film maybe starts out a little mild, but then the way in which it builds upon the kills, there's almost kind of, kind of you know, not to say that most kills don't have some cruel sensibility uh, behind them, but there is a bit of a nastier quality to the kills in this movie, to the original, I think, where they do kind of like give the... The perception that, oh, well, maybe this person or this character is about to survive this encounter, but then they throw that final curveball that, you know, no, they're going to get cut in half or they're going to get hit by a truck. Um, And, you know, the ending, which you mentioned in that, you know, turns out that his aunt is a Satanist as well and kills the husband and then she gets lit on fire. Like that was surprising for me because I didn't see that coming. And, you know, fortunately didn't have that spoiled for me, but I just like that you know, there is a, a meaner sensibility to kills, which I think comes out creatively and it makes some of them shocking, whether it be a genuine surprise uh, due to like a plot development or, you know, kind of having that cheesy glee behind it of like seeing that bo- that body dummy fly off, uh, fly off the hood of the 18 wheeler. Yeah, um, it, it, I definitely agree. It definitely does have sort of a little bit more of like a mean streak. But, you know, again, I feel like that's... Um, I I feel like that's sort of like the next conclusion of where this would go. Like shit's going to escalate a little bit more because he's older. The stakes are a little bit higher. Um, And, you know, it would kind of make sense that, uh, you know, you know, he's really coming into his own. So he's going to need some more kind of backup, I guess, as far as like keeping him safe and, and um, keeping him on the, trajectory where he's going but yeah uh, um yeah again it's it's I, I like that it has a really good body count especially for being like not uh a slasher movie per se um mm. but yeah i mean you know again like people have to kind of like put into terms of like when this movie was made and kind of how like how interesting it is for being sort of like a pseudo body count slasher movie without really being a slasher movie. I was surprised just in terms of like, again, I had never seen the first two films in the series and watching them one day after the next, I was surprised at seeing maybe sequel that characteristics of like horror sequels that we wouldn't see very frequently for, you know, until the eighties, really early eighties, starting with that. Um, and it's for some of the things that you mentioned, right? It's not a slasher sequel per se, but it definitely carries some of the qualities that we would see pop up in these slasher sequel franchises and whatnot, where it's like, yeah, you're going to see more elaborate kills. You might see a bit of more of a death streak or a mean streak rather. And to see that compartmentalized into the series that still carries it like the original and the original, you know, was very, personable focus between these characters and uncovering the mystery of what's happening and having the actors of a quality of a caliber that carried scenes like they were a stage play or something almost like that was a very interesting mix for me to see in both of these films and to see that this was it felt very ahead of its time again like I had to keep reminding myself that this was 1978 while I was watching it just because of so many qualities that were found in this sequel that you would go to see be very much like a staple of a lot of different uh, horror sequels and whatnot. Again, granted, not all of the deviations or the different narrative routes that this one would take from the original panned out. But, you know, this film, I feel like was taking big swings that we wouldn't see be commonplace in a lot of horror series until, you know, the next decade or so. 
Yeah. And again, it's the, the caliber of like not only the actors, but just everybody. Um, I mean, again, I know I mentioned this before, but like you had they had Bill Butler, who was Oscar nominated and has some amazing film credits to his name, like Jaws and Grease and One Flew Over a Cuckoo's Nest. Um, like the editor um, edited the Lost Boys and Flatliners and um, uh, the original Amityville Horror. Um, you know, so, I mean, you, you definitely have like A-list people on what would maybe otherwise be maybe like B-list material. Um, and it really elevates it. I, I mean, again, it's like, you know, every element is playing it so um, like they want it so bad to be the original. And again, it doesn't it, it doesn't always work. But I feel like, you know, the you know, you can really tell the effort that was put in um, like it was you, you know, I've seen a lot of like cash grab movies. and I know you have. Um, this is definitely not one of them. That's a perfect way to put it. And that's why I think I was so surprised at how much I enjoyed it. You know, I try to go in obviously to every movie with an open mind and certain expectations, but it's like something like The Omen. You're like, oh, they made Omen 2, 3, and 4, and then a remake. And I was like, well, they haven't touched those in a while, this franchise in a while. But also like never, just generally not hearing a lot of people talk about the sequels uh, fondly. And that's why, you know, I was so happy to be able to get you on to chat about this because I saw you tweet about it just very casually. And then I was like, oh, that's a perfect uh, film to kind of like kick off this month that's focusing on horror sequels and how there are more standouts than not. You know, I think it's a shame that and maybe we're starting to move away from that. Maybe not based on how people think some of the uh, horror sequels that have been uh, more contemporary ones recently. But there are a lot of, you know, whether you want to call them hidden gems or whatnot that really use the source material in interesting ways. And it doesn't always, again, doesn't always outpace the original or doesn't always outshine the original. But I find more often than not, you can find a sequel to a horror series that uses that material as a really interesting stepping stone into something that could be completely different or just, a, you know, a more refined version that has a couple of different narrative tweaks to it or their approach to kills or sensibilities in general. Um, but I guess before wrapping up, was there uh, any other element from Omen 2 that we didn't cover that you think makes it stand out from the original or makes it a, uh, a viable sequel? Um, no, I guess I just want to reiterate just how like I, I love the cast. I love how just tonally it really feels uh, right at home with the first film, but putting its own spin on it. I mean, you know, you're not going to be like Richard Donner. Um, like in his prime, but you know, um, the director Don Taylor is like no slouch either. So, I mean, I definitely think that it's, um, pretty great. I mean, um, it is, uh, a fun sequel. I would also say that I think I'm maybe the, one of the few people that like the Omen four. Have you seen that one? I haven't. No, I'm meaning to, uh, uh, to go watch three and four now. Yeah, so uh, The Omen 4 is, like, uh, kind of pretty bad, but I think it's, like, bad fun. Um, I think it was, like, a made-for-TV movie or maybe straight-to-video um, movie where it's a um, female Damien, essentially, which I think is pretty cool. Um, so, yeah, um, I feel like check that one out as well. But, um, yeah, it's um, definitely a favorite. And, you know, I'm I'm like pretty impressed that this has a pretty solid 6.2 out of 10 on imbd.com. So I'm glad that I'm not the only one that thinks that this movie is awesome. Yeah. It's always nice to, uh, to find that there are others out there that enjoy a movie, maybe not love, but enjoy a movie as much as you do. I think that's, uh, that's, you know, one of the, one of the benefits of film communities and whatnot is that you get to really revel or, you know, share opinions on a movie that maybe, the masses don't necessarily love or enjoy, but you know there's an audience out there for it and can appreciate what it does, whether it be better than the original or something that just you know evolves on that original concept in a way that's entertaining. And I think that that's the key with a lot of sla uh, horror sequels is that it needs to be entertaining. And again, whether or not what it's setting out to do actually works in the long run, at least it's entertaining and providing something that uh, 
that is not just sort of like resting on the laurels of the success of the original, which is definitely a problem with some uh, some horror sequels. But I think that this is definitely a standout for many of the reasons that we uh, we chatted about. But I wanted to give you a chance to, you know, plug your work and uh, your Twitter before I let you go. Sure. So um, you can find my book, The Ultimate Guide to Strange Cinema on Amazon. Um, I'm on um, Twitter at Strange Cinema 65. Um, you can also check out my, um, YouTube show, um, return of the living geeks, um, on, uh, again, on YouTube, obviously, um, the YouTube channel is, uh, geek vibes podcast, or you can just look up return of the living geeks, um, on YouTube and you can find us. Um, we've been trying to get like shows out like weekly, but, um, it's been a little hit or miss, but we definitely, um, have been putting out some pretty good consistent um stuff so we have a blast just geeking out about uh really fun um horror movies tv shows um we did a really great one um like last month for um saint patrick's day talking about rawhead rex which uh have you seen that one i haven't seen it but i did watch the beginning of uh that episode that you guys did and it, i stopped just so i could make time to watch the uh watch the movie and then come back to it but yeah i really enjoyed uh what i've seen so oh, far thank you yeah um yeah it, it's a really wild movie i it's one of those that like you either love it or hate it but um it, it's actually one that like kind of has grown on me but yeah so like that's the kind of stuff we talk about we try to talk about stuff that maybe isn't covered a whole lot um so yeah, definitely check that out. And I also have another series where I do home video reviews called The Video Attic. And that's also on Geek Vibes podcast, or you can just look up The Video Attic. Um, and like that's like my home video reviews. Yeah, I've really, uh, I really enjoyed watching some of your home video reviews just because, you know, you tend to, like you had said, you tend to highlight things that either I had never heard of or didn't even know that were coming out. So yeah, I mean, that's another example of, uh, I think, the great work that you do and, you know, highlighting things that you're not reading about on Twitter or whatever, every, you know, every other tweet. Um, but thank you again for bringing this film to chat about uh, today, because this is one that, you know, otherwise I might not have seen and I ended up being impressed and enjoyed it. So thank you again for your time, man. This was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of Daily Horror Habit. You can follow the show at Daily Horror Pod or give me a follow at Not Funny Jay. Thanks again for listening. and I'll see you guys next week.